Yeah. Uh, turn to the book of Daniel, and we are going to, we're going to do a series on the book of Daniel. I've done this uh, uh, series on Daniel twice before here. Um, it's going to be totally different as, it, as he, the other two were. Uh, but this is even going to be further, uh, have a further difference. Uh, we'll start out this way. Why should we study the book of Daniel? This is really important to think about. I would say that Daniel's life mirrors what is happening in our world today more than any other individual life presented to us in the Bible, with the possible exception of the life of Joseph. But the difference is Joseph's life was a family affair. The problems in Daniel's life were uh, an affair of politics, affair of state. So we have Daniel, just to get a good picture of him here, a young teenager. He's ripped from his family and taken captive to a country, Babylon, a country with a different culture, with a foreign language that Daniel did not speak, uh, a completely different religious system full of idols and demonic practices. The biblical morality lived in this place is upside down to what Daniel is used to. This healthy, young, brilliant man is made into a eunuch so that he is in no danger to the women in that culture. And we human beings cannot live without purpose and meaning. We must have purpose and meaning to flourish in life. Therefore, what's interesting about Daniel is that he decides from the beginning of his horrific trial to maintain his belief in God and the morality of the Hebrew Scriptures, even if it would cause his life to end as a result. There's a verse in the Bible that most of us have memorized and trusted in, at least until everything in our lives seems to deny the promise. Uh, it's Romans 8.28. Now, almost anybody here uh, could quote to me Romans 8.28. In the New Living Translation, it reads, and we know, the word know is the key here, this is a certainty, that God causes, what's the next word? Everything everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them, to his plan for you and his plan for me. Now, I certainly would not blame a young teenager like Daniel for doubting the promise of something like Romans 8.28. There's another person in the Bible that is very much like a Daniel. His name is Joseph. Uh, he's, in many ways, it's my favorite story in the Bible, in the Old Testament. His brothers tried to kill him, but instead they sold him into slavery. For the next couple of decades, try to imagine this. This is just a, a teenager, and for the next couple of decades, it seemed very much as if God had completely abandoned him. But like Daniel... He never stopped believing God had a plan for his life, even though circumstances seemed to deny even the remote possibility that this was, there could be anything good ever come out of this. Now, Joseph was largely resigned to living his whole life in captivity 
But on one particular day, circumstances completely changed, and all of a sudden, he became the most important person in the world other than the Pharaoh himself. It's an amazing story to read. Every time I read it, I'm, I find myself excited knowing that any day we wake up, something could happen on that day uh, that could have a huge impact, not only on our lives, but on the lives of others. Uh, Joseph not only saved his own family and his brothers who tried to kill him from certain starvation, but the Messiah, Jesus, came through the ancestry of Joseph. And it would be correct to say that Joseph's obedience in the face of terrible circumstances not only saved millions of deaths from starvation, but also saved the world. That is why he was able to quote an equivalent statement, much like Romans 8.28, when his brothers were terrified that he might have them executed. So the whole the famine is everywhere, but because of his wisdom, uh, Pharaoh agreed with everything he said. Uh, much food had been stored in Egypt, and his family traveled to Egypt. Otherwise, they would have starved to death. They had no idea. The brothers had no idea. They, they didn't know where Daniel was. They probably hadn't even thought about him for years and years and years anymore. And uh, when they uh, came, there were all kinds of things happened. Many of you know the story really well, and I won't go into all of it, but many things happened, and they finally had to face this young man, Joseph, who was their brother, who in a sense, more than just a sense, held in his hands their very lives, and they were very much afraid. But what did, did Joseph say? Well, it's in Genesis chapter 50. It starts at verse 19. And it reads, but Joseph replied, because they're, they're stumbling all over themselves. Oh, we're sorry we didn't, you know, don't, don't kill us, or, and all this kind of stuff. And what he said to them was this, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You know, when I read that, I think of the cross. Here's Jesus on the cross. We can't even imagine the physical pain, but also the pain of all the sin of the world going to be laid on him. And what does he say? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And so Joseph says to his brothers, fear not, don't be afraid of me. The number one command in the Bible, or imperative, grammatically, is the, whole, the phrase, fear not, don't be afraid. He says, am I God that I can punish you? Well, he's not God, but he certainly could have punished them. But then here's what he says. You intended to harm me. That's true. They tried to kill him. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, he says, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Wow. I mean, that's amazing to me. I, I've already thought about what I would have said to them. I would have put them, I would have put them through a ringer. <laughs> now, this sounds like a very favorite verse of mine from Luke chapter 12 that was quoted in Paul's sermon on Sunday. It's Luke chapter 12, verse 32. I've memorized it since the very first time I heard it in a sermon from this pulpit from a man by the name of Larry Gray, who some of you might remember. And it's the words of Jesus. 
So it's all for, it's for all of us. Fear not, little flock, we're the flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Wow. I mean, that's incredible. So as Christians living for Jesus, we never have anything to truly worry about. Now, Daniel is an extremely important prophetic book because unlike Jeremiah in the Bible, which deals mostly with Israel, Daniel deals with God's plan for Israel and for the Gentiles, that's us, until the end of the age, until Jesus comes again. And that's in the second half of the book, and we'll study that in detail. I've taught that many, many times, so you can see the detail. God gives Daniel a comprehensive revelation of what he, God, is doing and will be doing in human history until Jesus returns. Without an understanding of the book of Daniel, it would be very difficult to understand a sermon of Jesus that we call the Olivet Discourse. It's in the book of Matthew, chapters 24 and 25. It's all about the end times. And so if, you, if you're going to understand Matthew 24 and 25, if you're going to understand Luke chapter 21, if you're going to understand Mark chapter 13, you would need to understand the book of Daniel. It would also be difficult to understand uh, the book of Revelation, the last book in our Bible, without the book of Daniel. Daniel was captured in 605 BC and taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah were alive during the time of Daniel. Therefore, it is very profitable to read their books to understand the plan of God during the time of Daniel's captivity and throughout all of history. So I encourage you to take some time over the next few weeks to read those two books. The book Daniel wrote has often come under severe criticism because of the different languages that you find in the book. A good part of the book is written in Hebrew. A large part of the book is written in Aramaic. And there are a number of Persian words used in the writings in the books. And the critics say it had to be, the book had to be written after all the events predicted by Daniel because those languages weren't even known and those words weren't known in Daniel's day. But as always happens, and has happened over and over again when it comes to the Bible, uh, due to recent uh, archaeological discoveries, by recent, I mean in the, quite a few years ago, but uh, uh, we now know that the words in question were used in Daniel's day, and this just invalidates that criticism. The last two times I studied the book of Daniel, I spent an enormous amount of time proving all of this. I'm not going to bother with that this time, and I think you'll know why by the time we finish uh, tonight. Almost all modern liberal scholars reject the predictive part of the book of Daniel. They have no valid reasons other than they refuse to believe the extreme accuracy of the history written hundreds of years before the events described. And I'm talking about events inscribed in detail, hundreds of years. Uh, so it's not that Daniel was really bright. He was. He was brilliant. 
and that he sort of figured out when these things would happen. He couldn't have even imagined any of these things happening. Even the words that he said and wrote down uh, really don't make any sense in the context where Daniel was, but now we know exactly what they meant because those historical events have happened and there's more to come. Uh, the authenticity and proven accuracy of the written content by Daniel frustrates the doubters that don't believe in miracles and don't believe that we could accurately uh, tell the future the way the Bible does. Nevertheless, Jesus quotes from the book of Daniel in Matthew 24 three times. So I would say that if Jesus believed Daniel wrote the book, I have no trouble believing it is completely accurate. I think Jesus knows better than most than anybody. Sir Isaac Newton, a scientist who discovered the law of gravity, published a book called Observations Upon the Prophecies of Daniel and the Apocalypse, that's the Revelation, the last book in the Bible, of St. John. And here's a quote. Whoever rejects the prophecies of Daniel does as much as if he undermined the Christian religion, which, so to speak, is founded on Daniel's prophecies of Christ, of the Messiah. That's Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, Bishop Westcott, he was a, a, a famous, incredible scholar. He died in 1901 when he was actually my age and uh, just wrote some brilliant stuff. He declared that no other book of the Old Testament had so great a share in the development of Christianity. Paul's predictions, talking about the Apostle Paul, of the Antichrist, Westcott said, point back to the visions of Daniel. John's revelation is largely based on Daniel. John's revelation is, uh, the Apostle John is the Daniel of the New Testament. The book of Daniel and the apocalypse of John, that's the book of Revelation, stand or fall together. So uh, you can't study one without the other, and we'll be doing that eventually as we go through it. One of the most important purposes of the book of Daniel, and it's my main purpose of teaching, especially tonight, but all through the first half of the book especially, uh, is to show the sovereignty of God over history and over the lives of his people. The book of Daniel is not just a story of Daniel or even the Jewish people in Babylonian captivity, it's a picture of the sovereignty of God in human history. The book is about God and Daniel's faith in God. It is also a book about the coming of the Messiah prophesied in such an accurate way that it compels us to consider the place of the Word of God in our lives. Uh, Dr. Bill McRae, who was my mentor when I first heard him teach on the book of uh, Daniel, uh, as a matter of fact, I was watching, a, I watched an old sermon I found online of Dr. McRae. Uh, he just turned 90 a few days ago. And uh, he tells a story of being at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's a Canadian, but he went down to Dallas Theological Seminary to get his uh, master's and doctorate degree. And uh, while he was there, one of the extremely well-known professors, uh, had a son who had turned away from the faith. And the professor asked the son if he would be willing to do a Bible study, just him and his dad, dad and son, just on the book of Daniel. 
and on the prophecies of the book of Daniel. And when they finished the study, the son gave his life to Christ. He came back to Christ again because there's no way that the prophecies we're going to study in Daniel, there's no way that they could have been written by any human being. It had to be God, and they point to the Messiah and to all the things that have happened and are happening even today. So uh, Dr. McCray discipled me when I was a new Christian and some others, and um, he was the pastor of the church that Val and I found ourselves in after being born again. And he started a discipleship class underlining the importance of believing the Bible is true, including the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament Greek Scriptures. And so right away, as a brand new Christian, I learned that the Bible consists of 66 books, 27 in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament. It was written over 2,500 years by 40 different authors, most of whom did not know each other. And from the opening words of Genesis to the closing words of the Revelation, there is no inconsistency. The same theme is found in every book and chapter without contradiction. It is and continues to remain the most purchased and read book in the world, even though there are thousands of other religions, many who have their own writings. None of them can claim to prophesy the future with complete accuracy, as the Bible does, and as we will discover as we study Daniel's incredible book. Here's some scriptures he made us memorize. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. The Apostle Paul wrote, For everything that was written in the past, he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures, was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Hope is a key word Hope means purpose. It means uh, hope is a key word in, in the Bible. Human beings were created by God to have hope in God and in, a, in the future, the forever future. And we learn that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then uh, Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and he wrote this, Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed. I memorized it in a different version. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. And so it's, it's good to say that God actually wrote the Bible using the personality and the, the people of God, the men of God, uh, who were, wrote uh, in the Bible. So all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. That's what I'm doing right now. For rebuking, I do that sometime without knowing it. For correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's all of us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why we come to church. That's why we gather together to be equipped to be able to do the work that God has given us to do. And then uh, finally, 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter, chapter 1, writes these words. Above all... You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. In other words, it wasn't that the prophets that wrote in the Bible thought of, oh, I think I'll write this or I think I'll write that. No, they were inspired by God to write these things. And it goes on to say, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through, you, through uh, humans spoke from God 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I say all that, that's sort of all introduction, but on Sunday, if you were here, it, it would help if you were for the next little part, uh, Paul Cowley spoke to us. And I thought, personally, uh, I sat through the sermon twice, uh, that it was an amazing sermon. And, uh, and it was true. And one of the things that he said was that if you're looking at the news and all of that, uh, you're not being told the truth. It's worse than that. Well, I think all of us kind of believe that. <laughs> it's true. It is worse. But what's really important for us as Christians to understand is how, what does that mean to me? So am I to be afraid? Am I to be, uh, you know, uh, am I to sort of crawl into a hole someplace, go away and hide? How am I to act? Well, Jesus told us in many places how. And in Matthew chapter 24, I mentioned the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, chapter 24 and 25. Jesus said this, it's on the screen. And this will help us to know what our expectations should be because the future is bleak the near future. Jesus says, writes, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah and will deceive many. And that's true. I could have made a list and told you all their stories of many who came and said that they actually were the Messiah and they were just false uh, teachers. And then he says, Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And so, a good question. Have you heard of any wars lately? Uh, heard any rumors of wars? Like, you know, Thai something, one, or, and all of that, and lots of other places? Yeah. So, he's right there. But see to it that you're not alarmed. Now, I think that's really important for us to think about. Jesus is saying, and this has been happening all through human history at different times, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it, Christian, that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen. That's a divine must. But the end is still to come. And he goes on, nation will rise against nation. I had to refrain from giving exact examples. Kingdom against kingdom. You could think of, you know, Putin. Uh, there will be famines and earthquakes. There's terrible famines right now in parts of Africa. Earthquakes. Heard of any earthquakes recently? In various places. And then here's what Jesus says. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, that's, that's something to really think about. These are the beginning of birth pains. First, you... you if you don't know, you need to know that we are definitely living in what the Bible claims are the last days. We are living in the last days. All of the, all of the, the book of Revelation and what you're going to learn in Daniel points directly to the fact that we're living in the last days. One of the things we need to be careful of is we don't try to figure out how many days the last days are. We have a a commission from Jesus to tell as many as possible about the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are living in the last days, and the last days are characterized in the Bible. And I would characterize the last days with, with this phrase, we have forgotten God. 
Not just America. I'm not talking about America. I am, but not only. But the world has forgotten God. And we're trying to do things on our own. And that characterizes the last days. There's all kinds of other characterizations. And so he says, Jesus says here, that all these signs that we're seeing are the beginning of birth pains. Well, when a woman has birth pains, what are we expecting? We're expecting a baby. We're, we're, we're expecting a new birth uh, very soon. And we can sort of count the days <laughs> uh, because uh, when a woman says, uh-oh, I'm contractions, all that kind of stuff, it's time to grab the bags that are already packed. And you already know my story. I, I drive as fast as you can past the hospital. But... Uh, <laughs> So we know that it could be in minutes, it could be in hours, seldom longer than that, but minutes or hours uh, for sure. And, uh, but then, and sometimes there can be terrible complications uh, where uh, things do last longer or have more trouble or there's all kinds of things that happen during that time, a lot, a lot of difficulties during the time of birth pains. You know, I can't resist the story, I probably shouldn't tell it, but when I was a police officer, I was in 11 division uh, in Toronto. The, the name of my police division was the, the 11 division. In police college, they taught us how to deliver babies. And so one of the things we learned in police college uh, was these old movies. It was old black and white movies. They showed us a birth and explained what we can do if we ever are on a situation where we go on a call and the woman's having a baby. They were gross. <laughs> They were awful. And I, all I could think of is I'm sure that I'll never have to do anything like that. And, uh, but you should know that uh, while I was at 11 Division, we held the record of all the 22 divisions in Toronto of delivering more babies than any other police division. <laughs> no, I never got to do one, and I'm very thankful I didn't. Lots in taxis and in people in emergencies at home. Uh, but nevertheless, the end of birth pains is a new birth. It's a wonderful thing. A new baby, a new human being. Now, that's a great thing. But while we're heading to that, we are now in that time. And in 2 Timothy 3.1, Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, and says, you should know this, Timothy. He's really saying to Pastor Timothy, tell the people in the church, that in the last days, there will be very difficult times. That's why I call the sermon How to Survive Difficult Times. So let's discover the beginnings of birth pains for Daniel and his friends. So look in your Bibles now. We're going to go through the verses of chapter 1. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, first, what you need to know is, uh, just so we sort of get a little bit of the flavor of what's actually happening here, the prophet Jeremiah had warned Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, that if they didn't straighten themselves up and start obeying God's laws, that God was going to do something about it. And there was a prophecy given directly to them. And uh, Jehoiakim uh, didn't straighten things up. But if you were to re read this, <clears throat> and you don't know the whole story, but you know about the sovereignty of God, 
Uh, let me show you something. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it and the Lord. Now, the word Lord here is not the word for Jehovah or for Yahweh, but Adonai. The word Adonai emphasizes God's ownership and control, his sovereignty. God is more powerful than any other God. So if you're uh, just reading this, you might have thought this way, that and the Lord, Adonai, who's in charge of everybody, no king, no potentate, no army, any place is more powerful than God. And so you would expect it to read, and then Adonai just sent Nebuchadnezzar away. Everybody ran with their tail in between their legs, and they were totally defeated. But that's not what it says. And, and, and it's important we see that. Uh, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he's the king, remember, of the southern kingdom of Israel, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Now, this would be shocking to the Jewish people because they believed the temple of God was where God's presence was, and these articles were never to be removed from the temple. And they actually didn't believe they ever could be removed from the temple. But he handed over the, uh, the articles he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So not only did uh, Jehoiakim's people, the southern kingdom, uh, even with Jerusalem destroy all kinds of things, it was a terrible time, uh, not only did that happen, but all of these things in God's temple were now put in the temple of the Babylonians uh, where they believed in idolatry and false gods and all kinds of things. So here we have a, a picture right away in the beginning of the story of the sovereignty of God. And we know that the reason this happened is because the people of the southern kingdom, because of King Jehoiakim's relationship, uh, the people had forgotten God. And when we forget God... Uh, then things aren't going to go well with us. God does discipline those he loves, and he disciplines nations, and I think that's what's happening today. Then verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, so we're in Babylon now, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So these men were the top of their class, so to speak. They were the smartest of the smart. He was to teach them, this Babylonian sort of slave and servant, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now, Babylonia is also called Shinar in some of your translations. It's the site of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. That's the, one of the first times in the Bible. That's the first big time in the Bible we see people deciding, hey, we're going to totally forget God and we'll build ourselves a ziggurat up to heaven. And uh, it was bad news and it remained bad news for a very long time. 
And so the Babel or Babylon is synonymous with opposition to God and God's ways. So uh, Daniel here, he was probably 15 years old, maybe 16, not older than that, along with his friends, were to be taught Babylonian history and the demonic religion of Babylon. Brainwashed is the right word. Uh, trying to change the beliefs of Daniel and his friends. Learning a new language, which was to become their mother tongue, would further alienate them from all they had learned and been taught previously. So they were totally trying to change their mind and their whole mindset and to, to get rid of everything that they previously believed. Uh, the Babylonian University. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. And then verse 6 tells us, among those who were chosen, some were from Judah. And so we have the names of them. And so we have Dan, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's, they're going to be the main characters for the next while as we study this. Now, parents gave their children names uh, in a sense as prophecy of what they wanted their children to represent. Sometimes we do that here today. We do baby dedications, and, and then we've had some neat stories that we decided this was the name, and it represents something to do with God. And so Daniel's name means God is my judge. And by the way, if you don't believe God is your judge, if you don't believe in any kind of judgment or any kind of discipline, you're just eventually just going to do whatever you want to do, not what God wants. Daniel's very name meant God is my judge. Hananiah, that word means God is gracious, full of grace. Mishael, uh, his name is who is like God? You can imagine mom and dad seeing the baby and saying, oh, we're so thankful to God for this baby, and we want Mishael, uh, we want him to be like God. And Azariah means that God, or Yahweh, is my helper. And so all of these children, but they're young teenagers now, all of these men, young men, uh, were given names by their parents, that represented what they believed, what their parents believed, and what they were taught as they grew up. And then in verse 7, it says, the chief official gave them, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah, he gave them new names. So now Daniel's name becomes Belteshazzar. And, and to Hananiah, his name becomes Shadrach. And then to Mishael, uh, Meshach. And Azariah becomes Abednego. And uh, most of us can name off without any trouble Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we forget quickly uh, the name should be Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel's name becomes Belteshazzar. And uh, rather than go into all of the meaning of those names, because every one of them have meanings that have to do with idols and gods, all these Babylonian names, names represent idols in opposition to everything taught in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
And this is a major trial for Daniel and his friends, an attempt to make them completely forget their roots and become familiar with the small g-gods, I like to call it that, that they were now to worship. So here they are. They're now exiles, completely isolated from their culture and their upbringing. And the purpose of all this was to indoctrinate and confuse them so as to forget their religion and morality and understanding of the world. In other words, they were being trained to forget God. I don't think I'm exaggerating by saying that some of our greatest universities in America, or at least they used to be great, <clears throat> that's exactly what they're doing. And God's not allowed any place anymore, less and less places, even in, uh, in Canada now, uh, you know, Christianity is persona non grata, <laughs> and of course many places around the world, but it's getting that way more and more in America. So look at verse 8, and this is really important, but Daniel resolved, this is one place where I like what the King James Version says better. The King James Version says, Daniel purposed in his heart. I just like the sound of it and the feeling of it. Daniel purposed in his heart, but he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, many say uh, the King was, uh, king's food was unclean from a religious point of view, and that's why Daniel did this. No, that's not true. The reason Daniel refused the king's food, remember the king, he was to be served the food of the king. The reason that Daniel refused the king's food was that eating it would be the same as joining in fellowship with the king and all he believed. Uh, Daniel wanted to be independent of the king and his beliefs. Eating together in that culture was the same as saying we are friends, totally accepting one another and one another's beliefs. And that's why Daniel didn't want anything to do with that food at this point in time. And he resolved, he purposed in his heart, he was not going to do anything that would make it look like uh, that he was going to conform to the Babylonian religion or any other culture, part of the culture of Babylonia. Uh, there's another young man named Jonathan Edwards who lived in the 1700s. <clears throat> he was a great scholar and he was a preacher, the pastor of the largest church in New England in the 1700s of America. Uh, an incredible man. Uh, I've read all of his sermons in print over the years. Uh, he was one of the main uh, people behind the, the God used behind the Great Awakening in the 1700s. Uh, decades ago, I spent a lot of time and taught all about the Awakening. That, that was the most world-changing revival of religion in the history of the world, really, in the 1700s. And Daniel was one of the key figures, or not Daniel, I'm sorry, uh, Jonathan Edwards was one of the key figures. When he was 19 years old, this is so impressive, he made 70 resolu resolutions by which he lived his whole life. He died in his 50s, and that was kind of normal in that day. And uh, you can Google them. 
and you can read all of them. Let me just give you a couple of examples. 19 years old, resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. And then here's another one. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expect it, it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus. He did 70 of these things and lived them and had a huge impact on the world. And many people today uh, still read uh, his incredible writings. I can imagine a resolve of Daniel. Resolved that I shall never defile myself here in Babylon, God helping me whatever the consequences. That's what Daniel was like. He was like Jonathan Edwards. He was like Joseph, who all of those years in jails and prisons and false accusations and all of the things that happened to him, he never gave up on God. There will always be trials and testings in our lives. Jesus said we will have troubles in this life. Oh, you know the verse well, John 16, Jesus said, I have told you all this, everything especially written in John 14, 15, and 16. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You see, God uses trials, troubles, to build our faith. God is preparing us for larger and more worthwhile trials. Daniel had faith in God. Daniel had confidence in the sovereignty of God. Daniel honored God, and now God would honor Daniel. Daniel and his friends were not the only ones taken captive. We don't know how many were taken captive, but they weren't the only ones. But we never hear any specifics about the others. Here's something Jesus said that's important here. In Matthew chapter 10, in the Good News Bible, Jesus said, I like the translation, those who try to gain their own life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will gain it. I mean, that's true. People that are trying to gain their own life, uh, the self-made man, like my friend Charlie Jones used to say, you know, I'm a self-made man that, you know, God doesn't have to take the blame now because I did it to myself. Uh, but uh, those who give their lives away, that's his idea, who lose their life, who take up their cross to follow Jesus, uh, they're the ones that gain life and gain true hope and true joy. Now, it is probable that the others that we don't hear about decided to save their lives rather than risk their lives, so they would just fit in. Here's my point. Is my goal to live as long and as safe as possible, or is my goal to live in obedience to God's word regardless of the cost? George Barna is the statistician of Christianity. I'm not uh, really in favor of too many statistics, but he did say this, and he knows a lot about what goes on, especially in American Christianity. Christianity is not losing influence in America because it is overmatched by the challenges of the day. 
It is losing its impact because believers have been unsuccessful at merging faith and lifestyle outside the walls of the church. Non-believers expect us, Think. I want you to really think about this, non-believers expect us to have different religious beliefs and practices. Those differences fail to impress them. Only when those beliefs and practices shape our every other walk in life do they sit up and take notice. When I first became a Christian, I was in a very successful office of stockbrokers. And uh, we did everything together and all kinds of stuff. And we did very well as far as the world's concerned, money-wise, all that kind of thing. When I became a believer, the attitude was, oh, he'll get over it. Don't worry about it. He's always off in something. He's going there. All goes 100 miles an hour every place he goes. He'll forget about it. But after a few uh, months went by, uh, that wasn't how they felt anymore because I didn't forget about it. And they even got together and, and, and said that to the management, you got to get rid of this guy. And uh, it was very difficult for a while. They never did get rid of me. And uh, uh, a couple of people in the office became Christians. And uh, God really used me in great ways in that company. And that's why I'm even in Florida. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for all of that. But the, they didn't mind if I wanted to go to church on Sunday. And I just wanted to even mention God once in a while. But when I started challenging some of the ways they were living and say, things they were saying... Now, they didn't like that, and they didn't like the way that I had started to live. They, of course, accused me of being a hypocrite pretty quickly. And in many ways I was, but I was one that wasn't going to ever stop. Now look at verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Now this is a very intense time. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, he had reason to be, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head. And he's not exaggerating. He would have lost his head. It would have been chopped off because of you. And then Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice the Hebrew names. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. I can hear my mother right now, eat your vegetables. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Verse 14. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And these were other Jewish young men, Hebrew young men. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now, this is a picture of true faith. Daniel and his friends had faith in God who would do a miracle and it would be obvious that they were better off than before the change of diet. Now look at verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. 
So what we are seeing here is that God dispersed spiritual gifts to Daniel and his three friends. You realize that when we become a Christian, we all receive spiritual gifts. And somebody says, well, how will I know what my gift is? If we are involved in the church, gathered, and uh, it won't be long until your gift will become obvious. And, of course, you, you'll learn about it. I'm going to be teaching through 1 Corinthians in the morning services uh, for a while, and we'll talk about spiritual gifts a lot uh, as we do that. And so God is dispersing spiritual gifts to these young men and to Daniel and his three friends. And the special gift for Daniel of understanding visions and dreams. Now that will become very important later, as most of you know about Daniel, you'll know why it's important. The secret art of interpreting dreams was closely guarded by the religious gurus of the Babylonians. Daniel did not learn to interpret dreams from the education he was being given, but from God alone. And then verse 18, at the end of the time, set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal. And here, notice Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There's the Hebrew names. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the kings questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And by the way, that, that really is going to cause a problem because these uh, enchanters and magicians are not going to be very happy with Daniel, but he's going to save their lives. God's wisdom is always superior to the so-called wisdom found in any place of higher learning not based on biblical morality. The greatest need in our world, in our country today, the greatest need is wisdom. Wisdom. One doesn't have to watch more than a minute or two of news to realize some of the most powerful leaders, even in the world, have no real wisdom at all. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, verse 10, we're told, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Where does wisdom come from? Where does knowledge come from? It comes from the Lord. And then the last verse, 21, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So without going into all the details, Daniel had great influence on three Babylonian kings over a period of 70 years, and the final king being Cyrus. But also, Daniel was the one who decided to refuse the king's food. I, 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 did, you, did you notice that? Daniel decided that. He's the one who decided to refuse the king's food. His example influenced his three friends who, will come to a, who we will come to admire in the following chapters. The book of Daniel is divided into two parts. Chapters 1 to 6 uh, are about the character of Daniel and his friends, but especially the character of Daniel. And... Um, it's a, Daniel's very character 
is there to encourage us how to live in difficult times. We'll learn more about how to live in difficult times from Daniel than just about anybody else except, as I said, uh, Joseph, but he's living in a situation that we're all in right now. The next six chapters after that give us an amazing picture of world history which should encourage us to remain faithful until we go to where Jesus is or he returns. So, Daniel starts as a young man, teenager, totally committed to his God. Daniel ends as an old man, full of God's blessing, and still committed to his God. Daniel starts as an idealistic young teenager and ends as an idealistic old man. God is still looking for Daniels. Men and women of prayer, of all ages, uh, of uncompromising moral character, and full of godly wisdom. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. This is a great verse. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Oh, what a great verse that is. Daniel's obedience in small things, such as not eating the food from the king's table, prepared him for the lion's den. So this is a good question. Am I prepared for the lion's den? Do I love my life so much that I would rather try and protect it, or am I willing to submit to God so he can use me in the midst of the most dangerous battles? Therefore... It's my goal, it should be, or maybe just make this a question. Is my goal to live as long and as safe as possible, or is my goal to live in obedience to God regardless of the cost? One of the most inspirational statements of the Apostle Paul is found in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I've done, not too long ago, a couple of sermons on it. It reads this way. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord, who is Jesus, has given me. What's the task? The Great Commission, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And then finally, we'll close with a short passage of Scripture from the book of Isaiah that will remind you uh, about uh, uh, God's sovereignty and his care. Isaiah 43, 1 to 3. It reads this way. But now, O Jacob. Now, uh, Jacob became Israel. Uh, his name was changed to Israel. So when you see O Jacob or O Israel, it's God's people. But actually, you could put your own name in here because we're God's people. So, but now, and you, uh, O Jacob, or I could say O Pastor Carl, or you put your name in there. Listen to the Lord who created you. Oh, Israel, now he's talking about all of us together. The one who formed you says, God created us. He formed us in our mother's womb. And he, here's what he says. Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. You remember the word ransom when Jesus died on the cross? He died, he ransomed us from the wiles of the devil. So I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I'll be with you. We see that in the Exodus. 
When you go through rivers of difficulty, you'll not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Wow. Now let's pray and then we can worship with another song. Father, I'm so thankful for young and old Daniel. I'm so glad that we have such a record of him from teenager to a very old man. And all the way through his life, he trusted you no matter what the difficulties were. And I thank you for the prophecies that you inspired Daniel to write that proved to us without any doubt that you have a plan for all of world history and it's unraveling exactly the way that you planned it because you already knew what we would do and not do and what we would be like. I thank you for the great future that we have to look forward to regardless of what happens in this earth as we see it now. And so, Father, help us to be like Daniel because you are our sovereign Lord. You're in charge. You turn everything in our lives. We may think some of those things are bad. You turn everything to our good and your glory. And thank you that you're in charge. In Jesus' name.